Hello, and welcome back to another installment of Through the Wealth Lens. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. It's great to see you. Great to have you back on board with us. I'll have really the star of our show, Mr. Hannes Grasher, International Private Wealth Advisor over at UBS, joining us momentarily. But look, first, we want to thank you for finding your way back to the show here on Episode 2. If you caught us in the first episode, you know that Hannes and I took a deep dive into really the stress testing process overall, what it is, why affluent families and individuals are doing it on a regular basis, and then, of course, why it's so advantageous advantageous in the first place. But today we've got a little bit of a different conversation lined up for you today. The conversation of today is going to be centered around the, the idea of the big mistakes that affluent homeowners are making today. Of course, our homes, they're our biggest assets, they're our most stable assets, but they can often be overlooked. We certainly don't want to have anybody making mistakes when it comes to these particular assets. So hey, with that, let's go ahead and bring Hannes out. We've also got another special guest before I bring Hannes out that I want to introduce. It's Mr. Adam Posca. Adam's the owner of AXG Advisors, which is a high-end property, casualty, and life insurance brokerage. Uh, Adam's you know agreed to join us today to share his insights on the matter, his guidance, you know, his wisdom on property and casualty insurance and, and kind of weigh in on some of these mistakes that we're seeing affluent homeowners make today. So with that, let's go ahead and bring the guys on. Hannes, Adam, good to see you guys. How are we doing today? Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. It's good to see you again. Yeah, good to be here, guys. And and we appreciate having a special guest in Adam joining us today for the specific conversation that we're going to have on hand today. So, guys, let's get right into it. I, I think the best place to start here is when we look at affluent families and individuals, they often obviously have a lot of things on their plate. There's a lot of assets within their portfolio to consider. But one of the biggest assets that they tend to overlook in most cases is their homes. It's the, it's the stable asset. It's the thing that we maybe don't spend enough time thinking about, but it does often go overlooked. Looked. So that being said, I think a great spot for us to start today is, is to start by talking about just why it makes sense for homeowners overall to do a financial checkup of sorts on their home or homes. You know, for example, examining their insurance coverage as a start, you know, just to address any issues before they become bigger problems that are unfixable. Hannes, you want to bat lead off for us today and just kind of give us that overview as to why we should be considering this kind of thing? Sure, Ryan. And yes, you're absolutely right. I think especially last year, we saw many of our clients buying homes during the COVID crisis. They just wanted to get out of the city. You know, in my case, New York City, um, they had apartments here. They were just going, you know, they were just feeling really confined. And so they, in many cases, made the decision to buy a home really quite hastily and often overlook some, some important issues that you would typically look at when you're making such a big investment. So we're now looking at many of these purchases to make sure that no mistakes were made and, um, and if they were made, how we can fix them. So as you mentioned, I have Adam Poska here today. I'm lucky to have him. He is really um, uh, a high-end property and casualty insurance expert and the owner of XG Advisors. I call him our PNC Black Belt and we bring him in frequently. He's part of our virtual family office and we bring him in frequently when we have really high-end property and casualty insurance issues with our clients, with our ultra high net worth clients. So um, Adam, hi, thanks for joining today. Thanks, thanks for having me. And yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, throughout the course of the last 16 months, we've had so many clients just picking up from their typical city life and buying properties to, you know, to get some elbow room, to get some breathing space um, out in the country, you know, on the beach, in the mountains. Um, and that really comes with a lot of challenges um, because 
in my experience, you know, if you uh, have a large city home and most of your assets are city based, you know, adding a, you know, marquee property uh, that might be in the mountains or, you know, with beachfront exposure really changes the risk profile of your portfolio. And I think it's important for our clients to understand that and understand, you know, that whatever situation they might have been in with their insurance prior to that acquisition of that property, um, it could be totally different now. And, you know, we're, we've been looking and working a lot with those clients to identify the best place for them as far as terms and conditions go, as well as helping them identify all the pitfalls of owning some of these properties when it comes to insurance. So guys, I think a great spot for us to really dig in here and get moving into the conversation is really to identify kind of the five most prevalent mistakes and significant mistakes that we're seeing affluent families make in terms of their home's financial health. Uh, you know, could you get us started in, in kind of outlining what these might be, Hannes? Yeah, so I, I think for many of our clients, uh, real estate can be a significant part of their wealth. Uh, and in many cases, they own multiple homes. So when you when you have multiple homes, the chances that something could happen to one of them or in one of them increases. And so I, I think one of the most frequent uh, mistakes that I see is not having enough um, uh, you know, liability insurance. And even if you have a... a um, you know, a, a umbrella insurance, we see a lot of families uh, don't have enough of it. And, and so that's something that we, we see a lot, right? Some additional uh, mistakes are um, not listing your properties, or a lot of times the properties are in, in, in trusts or LLCs. And so the, the, the failing or failing to list these properties or these trusted limited liability companies on a homeowner policy is, is a mistake. Um, another one that we see is is not having a really cohesive coverage on, on multiple homes. And, and then a lot of these homes are historic homes. They have some unique features and to not adequately address those features can also be, you know, can be a mistake. And then finally, um, you know, a lot of these clients have other really high end, um, uh, assets, uh, collectors, cars, art, et cetera. So there's, there's even um, the failure to adequately insure those is also something that we see frequently. But, you know, Adam, Adam really deals with this on a, on a daily basis. And uh, Adam, what do you see uh, as a common thread here? Um, so, yeah, so everything you just said is definitely something we look at. Uh, liability coverage when it comes to some of these bigger secondary properties that the clients are buying, it's important to look at. Liability insurance uh, is relatively cheap compared to the overall cost of our clients' portfolios. So we always wanna make sure they have enough of it. Um, we also wanna make sure that every trust, LLC, entity, no matter how benign it is, is added as a named insured or additional insured to these policies to make sure that if any of those entities are ever named in a suit, that there's adequate coverage for them for defense purposes or otherwise. Um, you know, Some of the other mistakes that we're seeing is just the lack of marketing, right? So when the clients go into these new properties, they tend not to shop the insurance coverage. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, just because your current situation that you were in prior to the acquisition of that property might've been the best spot for you to be in, the insurance marketplace is a, is a constantly evolving thing where, you know, the bullseye for a certain carrier might be here one day, but then it moves and changes based on, you know, shoreline exposure, wind exposure, your build, 
earthquake exposure, landslide exposure, there's always a carrier that's more advantageous for that property than others. So as the client's insurance portfolio changes with the addition of these new assets, it's very important to do a full marketing with all the insurance carriers that are writing that type of business to make sure you're A, getting the most competitive pricing to reduce the carry cost of that asset, but also so that you're getting the most competitive terms and conditions. Um, and that goes without saying for any large acquisition for any of our clients across their portfolio. Um, and then additionally, we like to look at potential credits on these properties. Um, insurance, uh, by and large, is a very reactive animal. Um, we try to be a little bit more proactive. So when we look at the average life expectancy of these homes, say it's a 10-year life expectancy for that asset, how does doing something like installing a water alarm, you know, how does that compare for the cost of the expectancy of the asset across that 10-year period? So if we have a home that's going to be expected to be 10 years inside the client's portfolio, and the cost of installing a, a credit device might be $1,000, but it saves us $500 a year in premium, it makes, <coughs> excuse me, it makes sense for the, for the life expectancy of the asset. So we look at things like that, um, you know, more long-term uh, across the uh, spend of the portfolio when it comes to these things. Sure. And Adam, I'm so glad we have you with us here today to kind of share your insights into this world. And, and Hannes, you laid out a handful of really important you know, things to consider. I want to dig into each one of them specifically because there is a lot to unpack within this conversation. So specifically, let's start by talking about the mistake that you mentioned as the very first one in not having enough liability insurance. What are some of the biggest or more concerning issues that you guys are seeing on this front? Yeah, um, so let me give you an example. I think that's that probably shows it um, the best, right? So we, we had a very sophisticated and astute client who was building a uh, a large, large expensive home in California. And with, with all the devastating fires we've seen in California the last you know, few years, I asked Adam to review all his insurance policies to make sure he was really adequately protected uh, you know, as part of, of, of our, our review. And he was really smart and he'd used um, LLCs and trusts as part of his estate plans. And this particular property was uh, put in an LLC. And so when we did the review, we found that one of his advisors had missed an important step, namely putting the LLC on insurance policy, which essentially left the house uninsured and, and left him exposed to you know, lawsuits or in case of a, of a loss, in case of a fire, essentially the house wasn't insured. And I know, Adam, you know, these type of things are usually pretty easy and cheaply fixed. And uh, isn't that, I mean, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so whenever we have a client who rolls up their assets in entities for tax purposes or otherwise, we want to always make sure that those entities are covered. Um, because in the event of a lawsuit, which is what happened to the specific client, you know, they had a subcontractor on the job who was injured and then decided to sue everyone. Um, it's important to have these entities named for two reasons. One, because it provides it solidifies our coverage contractually with the insurance carrier for that entity and b because it allows us to go out and have that entity named as additional interest or additional insured with the gc with the architect with all the other parties involved and collect evidence of insurance for that entity so that if there is a suit we have the proper documentation and the paper trail 
to say, you know, your defense is covering us. Our liability is limited here because we've asked for the appropriate indemnification from all the responsible parties. And guys, one thing I really want to hit on is when you're the homeowner, how can you tell if there's a lack of adequate coverage? Like, are there any signs that a homeowner should be kind of looking out for along the way? So I think one of the first questions we asked uh, a client or homeowner is if he has an umbrella insurance. And if the answer is yes, we look at their net worth or more specifically, all the assets that can be detached in the lawsuit. So as we'd mentioned, you know, a lot of clients put assets into trusts or LLCs, which then uh, protects them from, you know, some lawsuits, if not all. Um, but um, there, there may be some assets that are not covered. And so if these assets are greater than the liability coverage, we might want to look at increasing the coverage. And, and as Adam mentioned, you know, umbrella policies are often the most effective and least expensive forms of asset protection you can get. And, and you know, it's, it's something that um, we really urge our clients to, to look at. And that's one of the first questions we ask. And, you know, Adam, can you give us a good uh, perspective on this as well? Absolutely. So um, there is no 100% right or wrong answer when it comes to selecting liability limits. I've found that with active management of a client's portfolio means we're going out every year, marketing the account when appropriate, but also looking at different limits. When we quote an umbrella for a client, we'll quote increments of $5 million, anywhere from $1 to $50 million. And at some point, what happens is the market uh, gives you your buying power inside the space. So where I might quote $5 million in liability for client, and that first $5 million might be $100 per million, at a certain point, the rate spikes. So if I go from 5 to 10, it still might be $100 per million. Then all of a sudden, from 10 to 15, it turns into $1,000 per million. And that's sort of giving your buying power inside the, your, your ecosystem. And we typically encourage our clients to buy up to that line because it's so affordable. Um, I don't typically care why our clients buy umbrella liability. It's I find it for either one of two reasons. Either we've done a ton of due diligence, we understand what the exposure is, what the potential maximum loss is from any exposure that client has, and we can put a number onto it, or just so our clients can sleep better at night. Um, and sometimes that means just buying an extra five million for a couple hundred bucks. So. It's just a good practice to always be reviewing that and making sure that you understand what your buying power is from a limited perspective and also trying to understand what your exposures are and where your maximum exposure is for any type of liability. So speaking of exposure, one of the things that we mentioned earlier was just that group of people that might have more than one home, multiple homes, maybe even those homes range across a variety of states or even countries If at that. So what are some big insurance pitfalls that, you know, a, a group like that would want to avoid? Yeah, Ryan. So as I mentioned earlier, it's not un uncommon for our clients to own houses in different states or even countries. I mean, they may have an apartment in New York maybe a summer home in Tuscany or in Florida and a ski house in Aspen. And so even if these homes have insurance coverage, um, there can be complications if the houses are insured under different policies and issued by different companies. A lot of times what we see is, you know, clients buy a property in a place, in a country, and they just go to a local agent and they don't really coordinate their entire insurance portfolios. And, and so ideally, for cohesive coverage and cost savings, 
you know, all the policies should be written with one high net worth insurance company. And that's something Adam and I talk about a lot. And he's really keen, uh, keenly focused on streamlining those policies. And a lot of times when you do that, you save money on premiums. Uh, right, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the old, the proverbial all your eggs in one basket situation. I like when our clients do that because it gives them more buying power with that insurance company leveraging all the premiums from what could be considered good risk into things that could be considered bad risk, you're more likely to get an accommodation from that carrier by grouping all your premiums together. Um, so whenever possible, we do like to streamline coverage with one carrier. Also because you know what, you know, in the event of a claim, it's all with that same carrier, right? So if you have your flood insurance, your homeowner's insurance, your liability insurance, and something happens on the property, there's no one, there's no chance of anyone pointing fingers to another carrier, or another line of coverage, if it's all with the same carrier. So you say, look, it's definitely coming, going to be paid. It just, which checkbook is it coming out of? So that, that really helps our clients from a claims management standpoint, but I also think it helps them, uh, you know, get the best terms and conditions they can by grouping all their stuff together with one carrier. So guys, another big mistake that was initially mentioned earlier in the show was failing to list trusts or LLCs on a homeowner's insurance policy. Could you walk me through why this is a potentially risky mistake and what it could ultimately mean for homeowners if they make this mistake in the first place? So construction project is a really great example because there's so many different entities and uh, people involved. Typically when our clients get into a construction contract on a new property, the land is owned in an LLC or an entity. There's a GC involved, an architect, an engineer, and subcontractors. So it's really good practice to have all those entities named as additional insureds and rolled up under the GC um, with subrogation uh, not waived uh, in the contract. And we like to review that for every one of our clients' construction projects to make sure that every entity has been named that every subcontractor that the GC is hiring is providing us with an evidence of insurance, naming and waiving us as well. Um, and what that does is it creates a paper trail. So then in the event of a claim, uh, which was the situation that Hannes is currently discussing, when there is a claim, we can point to the paper trail saying, here's where the coverage is. We've been named. You guys have a, a duty to defend us here because this entity was named and insured here under this contract. Um, and that really eliminates uh, our clients' liability in doing that. Um, so it is good practice to review that and make sure that all those uh, entities have the appropriate coverage and that we're collecting evidences of, of insurance with those different entities being named for on behalf of our clients. Guys, I also want to shift gears now when looking at the home specifically, looking at the, you know, maybe the unique architecture or the materials that were used to make the home. Where does this come into play? You know, could you address any sort of insurance pitfalls and mistakes that affluent families make on this front? Yeah, sure. So a lot of our affluent clients have, you know, have historic homes that have unique constructions and were built using expensive materials, sometimes materials that can no longer be found or cannot be replaced, right? And in some cases, the architecture is really unique. Um, they might have marble from Italy or chandeliers from, from Spain, right? So um, by not paying attention to these factors, the rebuilding cost in case of a fire or flood could far, far exceed the coverage. And then the client basically has to cover these expenses out of pocket. And um, yeah, so, you know, Adam and I frequently have conversations about some of these um, 
items. And I, I think he has some, some great examples. Adam? Yeah, um, so in, in the insurance ecosystem, there's several different types of carriers. The carriers that we deal with, I consider private client. Um, the replacement cost language they have in these policies typically provides a buffer um, in the event of a loss. So if we have a home that's insured for a million dollars, we might have extended replacement costs of 200% and the client has up to $2 million in the event of a loss to settle the damage to the property. That's important when we look at these replacement costs language in the policy when we're looking at the limits on a home. It's also good practice for our clients to have an inspection of the property done roughly every three to five years. What that does is it makes sure that the limits on that property are staying in line with inflation, right? In our current environment, the cost of materials, the cost of labor has gone through the roof. So some of those limits that our clients are using to insure their homes might be less than they should be, but we're getting that buffer with the extended replacement costs, or in some cases, the guaranteed replacement costs from these carriers. When we do the inspections, what we do is we look at artisan craftsmanship, uh, unique features of the home, uh, not just in the home, but around the property to make sure that in the event of a total loss, we would have the limits available to get a contractor to secure labor, to rebuild that home exactly the way it was, both from you know a real value perspective and also from an intrinsic value perspective for our clients. Oh my gosh. I mean, something you certainly want to consider if you do have that level of architecture or materials used to build your home. I mean, like you said, Hannes, you know, having marble imported from Italy and if anything were to happen to that, you know, it would be detrimental. And of course, you want to make sure that in some way, shape or form that that's insured and, and reinforced overall. Guys, I now want to shift focus to the stuff because let's be honest, we all have it regardless of our, you know, our level of affluence. But for those affluent clients, the stuff could be very valuable collections, maybe jewelry, cars, horses even. Let's talk about the stuff. Where do we want to shift our efforts and focus when it comes to ensuring that you have the right coverage when it comes to this stuff? Yeah, I mean, the what you call the stuff are really the sort of really high valuable uh, collection items. And, mm -hmm. and we have clients who have significant art collections uh, or antique or exotic cars, um, some own planes or yachts or, or, or even horses. And, uh, and so what we see a lot is that, you know, let's take a, a passionate art collector who started collecting art, you know, 30 years ago, and they've now assembled a, a, um, a significant art collection. And, and art has really appreciated as have cars. And, um, and what a lot of people assume is that their art pieces are covered under their homeowner insurance. But if, if a piece of property or piece of art has has really appreciated, um, the the insurance coverage may not be enough to replace that. And uh, and so, um, looking at these and doing um, regular appraisals is really important. And also to insure these pieces individually. Um, which you know is really crucial, and that's sometimes where we see where we see a mistake. And and you know again, uh, I want to go to Adam, who uh, deals with this on a you know on a really frequent basis. And Adam, you I think you have some great examples, right? Talking about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this there's always an example. I found throughout my entire career working in the private client space that if you engage with a client, there's something that they're passionate about, 
every single one of our high net worth clients has something that they're passionate about, whether it be a car collection, art collection, jewelry, antique guns, stamp collections, coin collections. I mean, I've seen throughout my career, I've seen everything, um, wine collections. Um, and what's really important is that there's not just the monetary value associated with these things. There is, you know, an intrinsic value. There is the process of putting together the collection and a typical homeowner's policy won't cover any of this stuff. There's sublimits in a homeowner's policy that says in the event of a loss, we will only pay up to X for this subclass of item. So the insurance carriers really want you to schedule any high value collections, any abnormally high valued items on a collections policy. And you want to insure it there anyway, because that's where it's the cheapest to insure. And there's no deductible. And that coverage provides things like depreciation and value, pairs and sets clauses. Um, there's coverage on that for something called mysterious disappearance. Whereas on a homeowner's policy, you have to have a fire, a theft, a burglary. There has to be a cause of loss that triggers the coverage in the homeowner's policy. With the collections policy, they have coverages like mysterious disappearance, which just means, hey, I don't know what happened to it. And then here you go, we can replace it. And a lot of these insurance carriers have actually collections management professionals who will go out and try to rebuild the collection in the event of a loss. So if you have a massive wine collection and you have it all cataloged and insured, and then there's a fire and all the wine's ruined, there's actually people at these carriers that will go out and try to rebuild your collection with the missing bottles that you have, which actually provides indemnification in a different way to these clients. You're helping restore something they were very passionate about. And it can't always be done, but at least that the attempt is there and the thought process behind restoring and correctly insuring that collection it, it is in place. And as long as you've had the conversation with the client, that they're aware of it. And I can't tell you how many times I've engaged with clients where they have something hanging out there that they're really passionate about, but just has never been addressed. Right. This is this is a one of the bigger questions of our entire discussion today, because at the end of the day, we all have, you know, those things that mean a lot to us. They have that intrinsic value that you mentioned, Adam. Uh, so super important to make sure that you're looking in and taking those right steps to make sure that those those valuable items, you know, whether it be intrinsic or material value is, you know, backed and covered. Um, well, guys, look, we've thrown a lot at our audience today. I think maybe we should give them some guidance on, on what they can do right here and now. What are some next steps that, you know, a fluent homeowner should be taking given all of the various risks and all of the strategies that we've laid out today? What are some next steps here? I mean, I generally would just say, you know, do a regular, a regular review of your assets, uh, do appraisals and review your insurance policies. And, and Adam, from your perspective, what do you consider best practice? Uh, how, often, how, how often would you review an insurance portfolio? So we, at AXG, we do a review every year, no matter what. Uh, we take a look at the incumbent, terms and conditions going into the renewal terms and conditions. But realistically, anytime there's a meaningful change in the client's asset portfolio, and sometimes it could be a life change, you know, change of job, change of income, uh, new kids, uh, new houses, obviously, new collections. Um, anytime something meaningfully changes in that client's life, it's a good idea to try to evaluate and review their insurance portfolio and their insurance program. Like I said, the insurance marketplace is constantly evolving. Right now, California is a big challenge. Florida is a big challenge. Um, anytime that 
you know, we have that sort of uh, changes going on inside the insurance uh, ecosystem, it's a good idea to keep your finger on the pulse, to be looking at new potential carriers that are coming in, uh, potential options for you from a deductible perspective, from a loss mitigation perspective. So just really be engaged around your insurance portfolio at least once a year is, is good practice. Sure. And Hannes, I got a final question and maybe it's a little geared more towards you. And that's what can uh, an affluent family or business's financial advisor or wealth manager, what can they do to help the homeowners, you know, see if they need to go about making any of these changes to their home insurance policies? Yeah, really just encourage them to, to do these uh, frequent reviews. I mean, we do it in, in portfolios and, you know, stock and bond portfolios. We do it with their trust estate plans. I mean, and, and what we see a lot is that the insurance portfolio is often overlooked and and often it's it's just a great way to A, save in premiums and really, um, you know, close some gaps that could be, you know, potentially devastating or really costly for our clients. So just, you know, make the insurance review part of an overall review on a, on a really consistent basis. I think that's really the best advice we can give to our clients. Roger that. And so guys, look, Hey, I really appreciate you, you both taking your time out of the day to kind of go through this process with me, kind of walk through some of these, these key mistakes that we're seeing affluent homeowners make. And Adam, so appreciate you uh, sharing your knowledge of the industry with us, some of your experiences with clients and something tells me we might be having you back on this show for a future episode. I, I would I'd love to be back on. Thanks so much for having me guys. Always fun. Alrighty, and look, we want to thank you, our audience, our listeners, for joining us here for another episode. If you liked what you saw, you liked what you heard today, remember, feel free to comment, subscribe to the show, share this information with friends and family. As you know, Hannes and I, we cover different complex financial topics on every episode, and we'd hate for you to miss out on any valuable insights that could help you look through that wealth lens. So for Hannes and for Adam, I'm Ryan Ruff saying so long, and we thank you so much for joining us on today's edition of Through the Wealth Lens.